Beloved in Christ the Lord, as we begin this sermon this afternoon, some of you might not be looking forward to it very much. A sermon on our sinfulness. There's nothing that wrecks a good mood like hearing about how rotten we are, right? Do we really need to hear about this again? Well, yes, we do need to hear about this again. And it's not just because, you know, well, it's in the catechism and we better just grit our teeth and and get it over with, kind of like eating your broccoli. No, it's different from that, much different. Hearing about our sin doesn't have to be an awful and pleasant experience. It's the opposite, actually. We are able to be glad when we hear teaching about our sin. Because when we do, then we're able to understand truly who Jesus is. We can understand what he has gone through for our sake. Hearing about our sin helps us to be blessed with comfort and with joy because of who Jesus is for us. If we recall Lord's Day 1, one of our favorite Lord's Days, we remember that we need to know three things in order to live and die in the comfort of knowing that we belong to Christ. Those three things are, number one, how great our sin and misery is. Number two, how we are delivered from them. And three, how we can be thankful for that deliverance. And we have to understand those three things. And our sin is one of the three. If we don't understand them, then we can't understand the gospel. We can't understand what Jesus has done. When we understand how helpless and how hopeless we would be without Jesus Christ. When we understand what our redemption costed, then we begin to understand something of the love of God for us. When we understand how great God's love is for us, we are comforted, we are assured, we are amazed by what God has done, and we react with worship. We react with praise. If God loves us enough to do all of this, everything that he has revealed, if he loves us that much, well then, we know that we can live without fear. We can live with comfort and with hope. So, so yes, we are going to hear about our sin today. And when we do this, we can grasp all the more how astounding it is that we can sit here today having fellowship with God and with each other. We can worship God rightly because of what we know about Him. We know how we can live before God as people who have sinned, but who are also being transformed into beautiful and holy creatures again. And so the gospel comes to us in this way. God displays salvation by showing us our sin. And we'll see three aspects of this. First, our good creation. Secondly, our tragic fall. And third, our gracious restoration. So first, we'll see our good creation. So 
when we when we think about what sin really is, uh, or what sin is, a really important question that comes up right away is, well, where did the sin come from? Did God make us this way? And if so, doesn't that make God evil? Doesn't that make God the author of evil, the inventor of evil? And this is something that atheists love to bring up when they argue with Christians. So they would suppose that the history of the world of the world would be something like the following. Well, if there is a God somewhere up there, then God created this world and created, you know, the mechanisms of the world, the natural occurrences. And according to those mechanisms, you know, organisms lived and died and developed into people, our ancestors, and along the way, they developed tendencies of survival. And these tendencies included attacking and killing each other so that the stronger ones survived and the other ones didn't. And then along with all of that, sicknesses and diseases came into the world too. And this goes on for some time. And then finally, God sees the world that he's made. He sees the product of his own hands. And he says, you know, all these generations of evil and and death and disease... Well, that's enough. I'm finally going to get involved and I'm going to fix things up. And then here comes the, uh, God's plan of salvation. And this is a really weak view of God. That's not our God. If this is the way it was, if that's the way it happened, well, then yes, then then sin and death and and corruption in this world would be a a direct result of God's work. He would be the author of sin if that's how it happened. And this is the first question that we see in Lord's Day 3. So in Lord's Day 2, as I said earlier, we saw that we were inclined by nature to hate God, to hate our neighbor. And the next question is, did God make us this way? Why are we like this? Is this God's doing? And we're taught here that, no, this is not God's fault. We can't say, as some would really like to say, I'm a sinner, I am as God made me, and, you know, I can't help it. We learn something quite different here. God created man good and in his image. He created us in true righteousness and holiness. Perfect and pure. Designed with with an amazing, beautiful purpose. Knowing God. Loving God. Worshiping God. Genesis 1, 26 and 27. God says, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. Pure, righteous, holy, And then we skip ahead to verse 31. After he does this, God saw everything that he had made, and it was very good. When God created this world, when he finished his work of creation, there was no death, no sin, no disease, no corruption. It was flawless. It was flawless. Unlike what we see today when we look around us. Creation was perfect. And that included human beings. Question six says, we were created good in God's image. 
And that means in true righteousness and holiness. And we read, we read the same thing earlier in Ephesians 4, verse 24, concerning our salvation. We'll see, we'll see that a little bit more in the third point when we're talking about the restoration of these qualities. That restoration means that we regain certain qualities that were lost. And those two major qualities are righteousness and holiness. This, according to the Apostle Paul, and also echoed by our catechism, this is the major idea that's contained in the image of God. So we're created in the image of God. That means true righteousness and holiness. So, so what, do those, what do those two things mean? Righteousness and holiness. Well, they're really tightly connected together. So we'll take holiness first, and then this will teach us something about how to think about righteousness so holiness, that's a pretty unique word. Uh, we don't really use it in everyday English. There's a good way to think about holiness, and that is in, in two ways. So first, holiness as who you are, your identity. The first way, and then the second way would be like what you are like. So first, who you are, and then the second way is what you are like. So the first way is you are either holy or you are not holy. There's no in-between, either either holy or not. The way that an everyday object could be holy or not holy. So if you think about, let's say, during uh, Old Testament tabernacle or, or temple worship, you could have an item, an everyday item like a candlestick. And this candlestick could be a holy candlestick or it could be a regular candlestick. If it's a regular candlestick, then it's a candlestick that any Israelite would use in their home for light, for, you know, whatever, for everyday use. But then you could have an identical candlestick that looks exactly like this one, but it's a holy one. It is, it is set aside and, and dedicated to a specific purpose, and that is to serve God in the temple or in the tabernacle. It is consecrated. It is made into a holy thing. You are holy in this way. And I'm speaking to you as the congregation of God here. Now, there may be some here who haven't been specifically marked out as holy, as dedicated to God. You haven't received that status yet, but many of us, most of us, we have received a special mark at some point during our lives. We've received this mark when we were baptized. This is God putting his mark, putting his claim on a person and saying, this one belongs to me. This one is dedicated to me. This one is holy. This one is for me. If you haven't been marked out in this way, if you haven't been baptized, well then you're strongly encouraged to declare that you believe in the Lord and to receive this mark. God has given it to us in order to comfort us and assure us that we are indeed holy, that we are for him, that we belong to him. So that's the first kind of holiness, what you are. And the second kind of holiness describes what you are like. 
So this is the kind of holiness, this is like a moral goodness. This is a kind of holiness that can fluctuate in degrees over time. We, as we go through our lives, we can become more and more holy by Christ's Spirit as we learn to live our lives as God wants us to. So, like that candlestick we're talking about, that candlestick could either be, you know, holy or not holy. But you wouldn't say, you know, that candlestick should really try to be a little bit more holy. You know, that's not how it works. So we're holy in both ways. We are holy in the first way, in the sense that we are for God, we're dedicated to Him, but we're also holy in the sense, in in the progressive, more and more, the morally goodness, or the moral goodness sense. So that's a lot to take in, but... We can think of righteousness as connected to this second kind of holiness. If someone was perfectly holy in the moral sense, if they had never sinned ever in the least, then God would look at that person and judge them to be righteous. No charge could ever be brought against them. Think of a courtroom setting of of innocent or guilty, righteous or unrighteous. And this is how we were created. We were created holy in the sense that we had one purpose. We were for God. And we were holy in the sense that we were morally perfect. No blemish. Perfect. Spotless. Righteous in the eyes of God. No charge could have been brought against Adam and Eve. And the beautiful thing about being created in that way is that we were created for a relationship with God. God is holy. He can only be related personally to holy things. And that's why he says to his people, Be holy, because I am holy He says, I'm holy, and I want to be near you, and I want to be with you, so you have to be holy too. And it's a beautiful relationship. In that relationship, God makes himself known to his people. He he reveals himself. He shows himself to us. He gave perfect knowledge to Adam and Eve so that they would be able to worship him and enjoy him and be filled, just be filled with the fullness of of God's glory. What a wonderful existence that is. Enjoying the goodness of God flawlessly. Basking in the glory of God with with no shame, with nothing hindering it. Experiencing the fullness of God's magnificence. We can hardly imagine how outstanding that existence is. Superb. It's superb. It's sublime. There aren't words for that kind of life. So now we look around and, and, and some people ask, look at all this evil, look at all this corruption. Did God do this? No. No. Not even close. God didn't create us this way. When God saw all that he had made, he judged it to be very good. So we ask, with the words of our catechism, well then, 
Where did our depraved nature come from? If God didn't make us that way, well then how in the world did we end up this way? And that's our second point, our tragic fall. We read from Romans 5 earlier in the service, and I want to look at verse 12 once again. Romans 5, verse 12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. We'll stop there for a moment, or for now. So this is also taught in our catechism, question and answer 7. Our depravity... It came through the fall and the disobedience of our first parents, Adam and Eve, in paradise. We read there, there our nature became so corrupt that we are all conceived and born in sin. So this all came through one man, Adam. And we know the story. God gave Adam and Eve every fruit and vegetable to eat, every good gift that he had created, but he withheld one from them. And of course, they thought that they knew better than God. They thought that they could overrule a command of God. So when they disobeyed, they became sinful in their nature. Their nature was changed. It was ruined. Our first father, Adam, was, so before that, he was in a perfect and a loving relationship with God. But when sin entered his heart and he disobeyed, his nature immediately became incompatible with God. His perfect holiness and righteousness, they were gone. And of course, since God is perfect and pure and holy, and by his own good nature, he can't have anything to do with Adam's corruption, so their relationship is broken, all the good gifts that Adam received from God, those were corrupted and he was suddenly subject to death. And this was the promise in, in Genesis 2, verse 17. In the day you eat of it, you will certainly die. Physical and spiritual death. That's the effect of sin. Physical, because the wages of sin is death. Whoever sins dies. And spiritual, because sinfulness it brings a separation from God, from God who is the source of life. You can't live without God. Spiritual death is horrific. The Canons of Dort, Article 1, or sorry, Canons of Dort, uh, describe it like this. Spiritual death is blindness. It's horrible darkness. It's futility. It is perverseness of judgment in mind. It's wickedness. It's rebelliousness. It's stubbornness in will and heart. It is impurity in all affections. And this, this new horrible nature that we have, it's like an infection. It's a hereditary disease that gets spread from one parent or from parent to child. It gets passed down. Through gen from generation to generation, with no exception. Everybody is born like this. Nobody by nature is born with a perfect, with the perfect and pure image of God 
anymore. And since that relationship is broken, nobody is able to know God. Genesis 6 verse 5, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all the time. Ephesians 2 verse 1, you were dead in your sins. Not, not pretty sick in your sins. Not incredibly ill in your sins. And we read there, you were dead in your sins. Like that's the most extreme that you can get. That's helpless. This is so dark. This is so hideous compared to the righteousness and the holiness that we were created with. And maybe this is the part that, that we have difficulty being okay with. Why did I have to be born like this? Why did I deserve to inherit this? I didn't sin in the garden, did I? This is, this is what Adam did. Adam had a choice. He had the ability to either choose to continue to live with God and love Him, or choose to throw it away, you know, reject God, fall into sin. We were born like this. And it seems to a lot of us through, through no fault of our own, right? How could we help it? Well, yeah, that's, that's a pretty big pill to swallow. But this is the horrible nature of sin. As mentioned before, sinful nature is hereditary. If you turn with me briefly at or to Genesis 5, verse 3, we'll see something interesting there. Genesis 5, chapter 3, when Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son, pay attention to this, he fathered a son in his own likeness, after his image, and named him Seth. Adam had a son in his image, in his likeness. The problem there is that Adam's image and likeness was sinful and corrupt. So God created Adam in God's image and likeness, and that resulted in in a, in a righteous and a holy Adam. Adam, after the fall into sin, has a son in his own image and likeness. And the son that results is one that is corrupt. We see this in Romans 5, verse 12 again. Sin comes into the world through one man and death because of that sin. Because of that, all people die because all all people sin. That's just the extent of the disease, the extent of the effect. Verse 15, the many died through one man's trespass. Verse 16, judgment that follows one trespass brings condemnation. Verse 17, because of the trespass of one man, death reigns. This means that death comes to everybody who is born. Verse 18, the trespass results in condemnation for all people. 
All this is to drive home the widespread effect of sin. One man sins, the first man, and his nature is so corrupt that he passes it to everyone. Everybody who comes from him. Every person who sits in this room right now, that's you, every single one of us is a descendant of Adam. Every single one of us were born by nature in the image and the likeness of Adam. And because of that, our natures are so corrupt that we're conceived and born in sin. But this isn't God's fault. We can't point our fingers at God because of our rebellion. Remember, he created us to be perfect and righteous and holy. We brought this on ourselves. We deserve this condition. The condition of being lost, dead in sin, dead for eternity, sin and death and hell. That's the natural rightful inheritance for every descendant of Adam. But, but, we saw something else in Romans chapter 5. And if you were following along as we quickly went through those, those verses just now, if you're following along as we looked at the extent of that condemnation in verse 12, 15, 16, 17, 18, then you would notice that we were only paying attention to one half of each sentence. Verse 15, yes, the many died through the one trespass, but the verse continues, but the free gift is not like the trespass. There's something else happening here. Verse 16, judgment brings condemnation, yes, but the gift of God, it brings justification. Verse 17, death reigns because of one trespass, but because of the gift, God's grace reigns in life. Verse 18, one trespass brings condemnation, but one righteous act brings justification and life for all people. So, if any of us were ready to think poorly of God because of what we rightfully inherit from Adam, if we were ready to sit there and accuse God and be angry with God because of this, well then how much more should we be ready to praise and thank Him and glorify Him for that imbalance, that imbalance of grace and mercy that He shows us in the other man, the divine man, Jesus Christ. Eternal death is deserved. That is what we deserve but eternal life is a gift. It's a gift that far surpasses what we deserve. It outweighs our condemnation. There's an alternative to that common human condition that we saw earlier, that pattern, the natural pattern, being born in sin, living in sin, dying in sin, and then experiencing eternal punishment for sin. That's the default. God gives this beautiful alternative. He gives restoration and life. And that's our third point. So we've been taking on a bit of a ride here from the splendor of creation, a life of righteousness and holiness, perfection, perfect knowledge of God, of living in His glory and enjoying it, being filled with the fullness of God, to here, our helpless 
natural condition. The condition that we're born with. Helpless and, and lost. So what can be done about that? <clears throat> well, we need to be saved from that, right? We need to be saved from that death. We need a rescuer who can save our life from certain and eternal death. And this rescuer is Jesus Christ, the second Adam. So in Romans 5, we saw how we all inherited one thing from our head, our original head, Adam, and how we receive this super abundance of blessings through our second head, the second Adam, Jesus Christ. We received a lousy inheritance from Adam, but for anyone who believes in Jesus Christ, the right to life is given once again. And God shows his eternal wisdom and love and goodness in, in this rescue immediately after the fall. Immediately after we rebelled against God, he declared salvation. He declared his promise to restore us to life. He promised that a descendant of Adam would come and that this descendant, unlike any of us, he would have the unique ability to overcome sin and death. No other descendant of Adam had that ability, was born with that power. Jesus, unlike any of us, he was immune to that inheritance, to that deadly inheritance. Why was that? How could that be possible? Why didn't Jesus inherit the thing that we all inherit as descendants of Adam? Well, it's because of something that we're going to confess after the sermon. When we profess our faith, we're going to say certain words. We're going to confess that Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. And that is so important that we're able to confess that. Because that's the only way that he would be born a true man, because of Mary. But because of the way he was conceived, he was not conceived and born in sin. Finally, someone who can get us out of this mess, right? Because he is a God man. He's a divine man, the divine man, the perfect image of the Father. We were created in the image and likeness of God, and, and we lost much of that. But Jesus is the perfect, uncorrupted image. He's the one who has the divine power to be able to bear the wrath of God for sins that we committed, sins that he took credit for. The true God, true man, the one who defeated death itself by his own death. He's the one who changes our lives. He not only gives us the right to live eternally, but he also changes our lives right now, today. Today he changes our lives. Question eight in our Lord's Day. It gets us to be honest, really honest about our condition apart from Christ. 
How corrupt are we in Adam? Really, how bad is it? Are we so corrupt that we can't do any good at all? Are we inclined to all evil? Yes, we're that bad. Unless. Unless. And that's a big unless. Unless we are regenerated by the Spirit of God. Regenerated. Remade. Recreated. Renewed. This is the present benefit. This is the benefit today of belonging to Jesus Christ. We're fallen creatures. But we have the promise of eternal life. We saw all that in Romans 5. But that's not only something that is far off. It's not something that remains out there in the future. But it's something that is today. Jesus Christ gives us his spirit to restore our minds now to the knowledge of God. By ourselves, we had no righteousness, no holiness, no knowledge of God. But by the Spirit of Christ, these things are restored. God considers us to be righteous. And by the Holy Spirit's miraculous work in our hearts, we are able to make more and more progress in holiness. The moral kind. We're able to more and more keep the commands of God. That's amazing. Instead of being inclined to evil, attracted to evil, we can be more and more inclined to goodness, more and more attracted to goodness. The Holy Spirit makes our appetites, our desires, our affections. He makes these things come to life within us. Instead of being dead in sin. So Romans 2 verse 1 wouldn't apply anymore. You were dead in your sins. Not anymore. Ephesians 4, 17 and 19 speaks of the way we would be walking without Christ. In futility of our minds, darkened in understanding alienated from God, callous, inclined towards spirituality, but we're different in Christ because of the work of the Spirit in us. He makes that kind of deadness come to life. Come to life. It's as awesome and as miraculous and as powerful as creation itself. It's as powerful as the raising of the dead, a dead body coming to life. This is the power that is at work in you today. Verses 23 and 24. You are being renewed in the spirit of your minds. Constantly in the process of putting on the new self. Created after the likeness of God. In true righteousness and holiness. That's amazing. We had kissed that goodbye that was gone. That nature was gone. But all that was lost is being restored. And what does that look like? Well, it looks like people who, by nature, would be desiring evil, worshiping themselves, listening to evil desires, but instead, having a changed nature, a nature that loves the law of God. It looks like 
people who can sincerely say with the psalmist in Psalm 19, Psalm 119, Lord, I love your law. It's more precious to me than fine gold. I delight in your statutes. We are being transformed into people whose new natural desires, the things that we desire, are the very things that God commands. We can love to come and worship Him like we are now, like we are doing today. We can love to serve each other. We can love to deny ourselves and worship God and love each other. That is regeneration. That is restoration. And that's an amazing story. When we know the story, when we know how this came about, a story in which our sin is such a huge part, well, then we can have a better understanding of who God is. We have a better understanding of who our Savior is, the price that he paid, the love of God that was shown to us in Christ, the love that would bring about such a rescue at such a cost. Wow. Paul expresses this desire in Ephesians 3. He bows his knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named so that according to the riches of his glory, he might grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. That you, being rooted and grounded in love, that you might have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with the fullness of God. That's what our sin teaches us. And when we are filled with the fullness of God, what a comfort we have in this life. We are comforted in life and death. Because each one of us can say this, I belong to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins and has set me free from the power of the devil. That is the glorious gospel of salvation. Amen.